I am really excited about this week's interview because I feel like I am view, taking a view into what my life could have been. You've probably seen those movies like what your life would have been like if something happened differently. Well, I'm going to maybe venture down that road today. Uh, today's guest is Molly Parm- Palmer. Molly, welcome to today's podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And you are from Atlanta, Georgia. And so I assume you've been busy counting votes over the last several months. <laughs> have you found the missing 11,000 votes? I'm just curious. Uh, not yet. Sorry. I guess we're going to keep trying, though. Still looking, still looking. I, have, I actually moved to Florida in 2000, right after the election. And uh, right. and so we got caught up in the election lawsuits there. And that went on for months. I don't know if you remember the whole Bush v. Gore lawsuits oh, down yeah. there. Uh, but um, and not, not quite different. Well, Molly, you have a very fascinating practice. Uh, and on our show notes for this podcast, we'll have all ways that they can people can contact you, your website, uh, your Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. You are apparently connected. N- n- no TikTok? I do have a TikTok, You actually. do have a TikTok. Yes. Right. <laughs> I stopped posting on it. I think it's Atlanta Lawyer. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's it's Atlanta lawyer on TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> what is TikTok? I've well, heard of it. I'm still figuring it out myself. I don't know. So I posted on it, you know, just to, for a, a little while and got you know millions of views. Um, I, I was giving legal advice. Okay. <laughs> well, not, not not legal advice. Right. I get but, you. I got you. You know, I was talking about you know don't don't make statements to police. Right. And, right. You know that kind of stuff. But ultimately, I think it's for dancing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a millennial, so I don't know if it was a an appropriate platform for me because I'm not going to be doing dances on there. So yeah, I think I'm missing of, out on a marketing opportunity. Yeah, yeah. maybe so. But I, yeah, I definitely, I have a few, I have a few TikTok videos on there for sure. Have you heard of the law hawk? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, that's, that's why you've done this podcast is now, you know, about the law Hawk after we get done here, Google the law Hawk and watch his videos. Uh, they're amazing. And so I think there is some benefit to these kind of off the wall marketing ideas. I'm thinking this one lawyer here in Kansas city where I'm from, and he is called, uh, Tarzan, the Lawman, and all of his billboards out there. He's not wearing any shirts and he's like swinging from the vines, (laughs) has long flowing hair. He is Tarzan. Tarzan the lawman. And last I heard, he's making a boatload of money. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it, it pays to have the, the nice uh, advertising shtick. Uh, but you practice <laughs> in an area of law that it, it, it fascinates me. Uh, and I'm just reading your bio. And it, it looks like you love to represent the the, the disadvantage. Uh, how, how would you best characterize You said it perfectly, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I would I represent the accused. I'm a criminal defense attorney, but I think, you know, even before I had this job, I've always been very attracted to the underdog and the marginalized and right. those people in society that are cast aside or you know considered lesser or worse in some capacity. Now, so that's that's what I do in the court of law. I know my, a lot of my listeners are probably fascinated. It's like um, to, to get into the mind of a criminal defense attorney. It, it's like you, you have all these kinds of questions that you want asked. Uh, now, so I want to get your perspective on that. Uh, the, the reputation of criminal defense attorneys. Uh, are you? Fam- I assume you're familiar with the. Is it John Adams' story? Are you familiar with that story? 
Um, <laughs> John Adams but, way back in, you know, the, the founding fathers back. Yeah, Rutland. I know that John Adams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was the, 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 uh, the, um, the firing, the, they shot, uh, I was shot around the world. There was, I think one oh, yeah. person there shot on the British soldiers something like that. Uh, and that's John Adams actually represented the British mm-hmm. soldiers in that case and thought, how could anyone possibly represent the enemy? Well, Everyone deserves their day in court uh, and deserves, you know, representation. So I'm hoping we can have a little bit of a of a conversation like that. But before we get there, I, I'm just curious, how did you decide to become a lawyer? I mean, what, did you grow up always wanting to be a lawyer? Did you watch a movie? Uh, did no. you just take career fair? They pay the most money. I mean, how is it that you no. chose to become a lawyer? Well, you know, I actually came about it in somewhat of a roundabout way. I grew up um, you know, not in a family of lawyers, but a little bit in a family of criminals. I grew up really okay. poor. <laughs> yeah. My dad, you know, he was an artist. He was, you know, not really well known at the time, but he was part of the underground cartoonist movement of the late sixties. Really? So I know, yeah. So I know they had the, um, that movie recently, the trial of the Chicago seven, but he was basically the eight of the Chicago okay. seven. He had illustrated Abby Hoffman's steal this book. And so my parents were these, you know, hardcore hippies. They didn't believe in jobs or money. They just believed in kind of art and freedom. And so I was raised, (laughs) you know, it was in the eighties, but they didn't really let go of those ideals. And so we had kind of a, you know, I had a very strange, strange childhood and upbringing. Um, You know, and again, when you're poor, that's something you recognize very early on as a kid. And I think that, you know, that my connection to growing up in poverty, I think really, was my first framework to understand that there are people in society that don't have the same chances and the same opportunities and nothing really happens in a vacuum. And so I ultimately, um, you know, my parents did value education, even though they were kind of wild, crazy people. Um, and I wanted to get away from my bohemian roots. I didn't, okay. didn't want to be poor. I didn't want to be an artist, you know? Right. And so I ended up going to um, a really great school down here, an engineering school, Georgia Tech, because okay. I wanted to get as far from, you know, the artistic side of things as possible. And of course, you know, it had to be free. I had to get, go to college for free or I wouldn't go. Right, right. And so, you know, I loved academics. I'm a very academic person. But then after college, I, you know, I wanted to serve people. I wanted to help people. And so I actually became a special ed teacher in a title one school in Southwest Atlanta. Um, and I taught students with behavior disorders. Now, before we get and, there, I, I want to touch yeah. base on what you just said uh, before I forget it. Uh, and then I want to sure. you know, go on with your story. Um, because I have a similar upbringing, not, not, I say similar, I mean, not, you know, uh, brought up by, by in that kind of hippie situation, but, um, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of money. I remember asking my parents, are, are we poor? And I am wondering if that's not a benefit. Are we doing our kids a disservice by bringing them up with money? I, I can tell you, it's a real struggle. I've had recently in my mind, it's like, you know, maybe we should move back into where the neighborhood where I grew up, you know, Section 8 housing. Because uh, yeah. my kids missed out. I had a great childhood. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, mine was fine in some ways, but definitely a lot of struggle. And I would say that, you know, one thing I know f- for certain is that I am pretty happy as an adult. I have a right. lot of gratitude, you know, and I think when I went to law school, I went to a, a the private law school and a lot of the students I was around, I was surprised at how they were sad and, you know, not really grateful for the opportunity. But I think it's because, 
they lived a very different life. You know, I'm very happy and pretty well adjusted because I don't need much. I don't require oh, a lot. You know, I, I'm, I'm very satisfied. And I'm pretty sure that neither you nor I feel entitled to really anything. Uh, if we right. want something in life, we work for it because that's right. uh, we had no choice growing up. That was our exactly. uh, that was our way out, if you will. All right, so yeah, then for sure. So you you after college, you then you worked and you taught, uh, and that was interesting. Yeah. It was kind of a weird, you know, it was a bit of a left turn. I did like a teacher alternative preparation program and got a certificate. And there was a need for teachers to teach in, uh, you know, kind of difficult school districts, Title I impoverished schools, and specifically special ed. And so I ended up with a class of students who had, for the most part, behavior disorders, emotional and behavioral disorders. And I loved it. And, you know, it's like somewhat similar (laughs) to what I do now. I like... You know, I like the whoever in society gets labeled as bad or wrong. Like, I'll take those people any day. You know, they're far more interesting. And I think all of us have that within us. But, you know, it's it's all, again, you know, dependent on our circumstances and the layers of experience we all bring into any situation. You know, sometimes those parts of, of us come out and sometimes they don't. But my students, you know, they did have diagnosable issues and they were really interesting. They were smart, but they couldn't quite conform to society. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the the, the teachers didn't want to deal with them. And, and so I, I think that that idea of serving the marginalized and serving the misunderstood resonated with me deeply. And then ultimately, you know, I decided to go to law school kind of later in life. Um, and basically I, I said, you know, again, with my kind of mentality about money, I was like, well, if I can go for free, I'll right, go right, if I can right. get a full scholarship, but if not, I won't. And so, you know, I, um, I did end up getting to go to law school, uh, on a full ride and, and then kind of just organically found myself connecting with criminal defense. I didn't go into law school thinking, oh, I'm going to be a criminal defense lawyer. I okay. went in, very open-minded. Right. But of course, you know, you, you get in where you fit in. You kind of find your way. And it just, now looking back, obviously, the, the best job for me is to be a criminal defense lawyer. So now how did that work out? Because, you know, for our, the listeners, again, who don't go to law school, uh, you know, pretty much at, right after you go to law school, you're, you're worried about, am I going to get a job? Am I going to be able to pay, you know, uh, afford to live afterwards? And so there's an interview process where the fall of your first year, you can apply for internships. Now, very few lawyers ever get them. But the fall of your second year is really where the firms come in and start to interview you uh, for particular positions. And then again, the fall and really the spring also of your your third year as well. So did you pretty much just interview with uh, the criminal defense uh, employers or did you have an open mind at that point, but then just kind of found yourself going towards the criminal defense? Yeah. So, you know, my first year, I was still kind of figuring it out. But once it became clear to me, basically by my second year, that criminal defense was what I wanted to do, um, you know, I knew I didn't want to do big law. I didn't want to go through those kind of like corporate firm interviews. That's not me at all, (laughs) at all. So I was really interested in being a public defender. That was really what I wanted to do. And I was lucky that Um, I interviewed at a great local public defender's office and I got to do a full-time internship after my second year. So that summer and in Georgia, 
we have the third year practice act. So, ah. so long as your supervising attorney is in the room, you can basically be the lawyer on the record. And that's why, you know, I spent a summer 40 plus hours a week really doing what I would, you know, eventually be doing as a public defender. I got to try a murder and we won. <laughs> so, you tried a murder you know. <laughs> case your third year in law school. And one, not wow. guilty. So, you know, that changes you. So once you have, once you get that like trial bug, I can't there's even no imagine. turning back. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Yeah, it's wild. So, Man. you know, what was it, was it like when you were waiting for the verdict to come down? So my supervising attorney still, you know, we still keep up with each other, but um, he makes fun of me because I held hands with the client, you know, okay. <laughs> we right, were holding right. hands. It was amazing. I mean, I can't, I will forever remember every second sitting there and holding this gentleman's hand and having, you know, the four persons stand up and read right. a long list of charges and, you know, not guilty across the board. It was unbelievable. Did you have for an somebody. idea, <laughs> guilt or not guilty, before um, the verdict was read? Yeah, I mean, we, we, so it had, it was a case that had previously been tried and resulted in a hung jury. So okay. we knew the evidence wasn't that strong, but it's always, you just never know, you know, it's just 12 random wow. people from the community. So it all, it comes down to, I think, the jury really doing their job and applying reasonable doubt. If we could get a jury to do that, we felt strong, but you just never know. You never know. So, you know, it was thrilling to say the least. My, I can't even imagine. I, that's one of the, yeah. my big pitfalls in law is I almost get too involved in cases emotionally on behalf of the client. And yeah. and, and those are non-criminal cases. I'm, we're, we're talking <laughs> vaccination cases. I get way too involved. <laughs> and, and so if my client's actual life was on the line, yeah. oh, my goodness, I'd be, in, I'd be in a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how it feels, <laughs> you know, but you have to be the kind of person that you know, for whatever reason, relishes that. Like I'm profoundly emotionally involved in all of my cases, but it's it's a good thing, you know? It doesn't stress me out too much. It's kind of what I live for. But yeah, after that, you know, that was the job I wanted. And I was lucky enough that before I finished school, my third year, they did, that public defender's office did extend an offer to me and okay. I got to start working there right away before I was even barred. So, you know, that was kind of my first job in criminal defense. See, that is... um uh, that. I, looking back on it, I almost wish I had gone that route because you obviously said you're not the type that would go big law. You you, you wouldn't do that. And no. I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of the same way, but I did do that. And I, 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 I won't say I regret it, but it was just a waste of my time. I mean, I knew I was Jonah. I was a fish out of water. I was miserable yeah. there at the big law firm. And I, I, I remember sitting in front of a computer desk thinking, Surely there's more to life than this. This is yeah. just crap. I've got to get out of here. Uh, and so um, looking back on it, you, you, they say if you go the route of a public defender or in the prosecutor's office, you get court time so much quicker. Is that, I mean, like when did you have your first jury trial? I guess it's even before you graduated, you had your first jury right. trial. Yeah, that murder was technically my first. <laughs> so, you know, um, I had a couple before I graduated. And then, you know, you just start trying cases and they range from you get such great experience because you have everything from like a traffic ticket all the way to, you know, very serious armed robberies and aggravated assaults and murders. And so you get such a range of experience in those offices. And it really did, I think, shape my practice in a way that few other jobs could. So wow. I started there in the county public defender's office. And then after a couple of years, I was hired by the federal defender in Atlanta 
which was, you know, also an incredible, incredible experience. All right. But now, now you have your own firm. So you, you've branched yeah. out now and now you're doing your own practice. Um, what is your, and I looked, I looked at your, your website. It's, a, it's an amazing website, all the different areas that you specialize <laughs> in. Um, uh, any very intra, how would you describe your area of specialty? So I would say that I handle high stakes criminal cases predominantly in federal court. Okay. I don't do misdemeanors. I don't do DUIs. I don't do traffic citations. I like sex offenses. I like drug cases. I like violent crimes. And then I like the real crazy federal court stuff, which you know could be financial crimes, the white collar stuff, or international cases. Um, you know, that's kind of my area of specialty. It has to be pretty serious for me to get involved. Okay. Now, uh, what was, now this doesn't have to be one of your stories, but what, what, is, do you have any really wild courtroom stories to, to share with us? Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you that the coolest trial that I've ever been a part of um, was when I was a federal defender and I defended a man who was accused of being a war criminal from Bosnia in the 90s. And so that meant that I had to travel to Bosnia and investigate, you know, and interview witnesses and take depositions because we didn't have subpoena power. So we brought a whole camera crew and interpreters over to rural Bosnia for a couple weeks and got to talk about, you know, what happened in the 90s and then you know, in court, it was real wild because, you know, Bosnia as a country still to this day is pretty um, kind of fractioned in terms of the dynamics of the people that live there. I think that, you know, they're still not quite recovered from the war. And so you have the Serbs who are still kind of against the Catholic Croats who are still kind of against the Bosniaks. And, you know, we had two different interpreters in the courtroom throughout the trial from two different, you know, ethnic backgrounds of Bosnia. And, one of them had to quit mid-trial because it was very contentious and, you know, just a very heated um, dynamic between the two. And they had issues with each other. And it just, you know, it, I think it really highlighted kind of what an interesting, you know, issue this case presented in terms of that country. And then ultimately we did lose a trial and I got to argue in front of the 11th Circuit okay. about, you know, some constitutional issues, which was very cool. But, you know, that case, that international aspect and dealing with that piece of history right. live and in a courtroom however many years later was pretty wild. Interesting. Interesting. All right. The um uh uh, now that was over. So how does it actually work? So if you go over to a foreign country, so you brought your film crew over there to record the depositions, did the opposing counsel also, I guess yeah. you didn't have opposing counsel. Department gonna... of Justice came too. Yeah. The, the uh, lawyers from DOJ came as well. And, okay. um, you know, we filmed the whole thing and it was, it was, you know, it was a very involved, you learned so much. It was such an involved process. You'd have to get what's called letters rogatory and certain government permissions. And, you know, everyone has to agree and the district judge has to approve a lot of this stuff. And so, you know, it's not your, your straightforward, Hey, somebody got shot at the gas station case, right? Right, right, right. It's really, you know, it becomes just a really in-depth, difficult, complicated experience, but we did it, and, you know, it definitely was by far the most fascinating trial I've been a part of. Now, how do you handle—you mentioned sex crimes cases. How how do you handle those? Because surely that's got to involve subject matter and things that it, it would just be, it would be hard to do. And so I was telling you before we went on air uh, that I had a co-counsel in case, um, and 
uh, in El Paso, and she represented, she specialized in, in that kind of practice. And this is what she told me, so I'd be curious to see what your perspective is on it, is that during Voidire, and we're talking, this is Texas, so it's probably not like Atlanta, but in, in, <laughs> in, in Texas, she would deliberately swear during Voidire because if, um, if one of her jurors had a problem with that, she knew they're not going to be able to stomach the subject matter that was going to be put before them in the actual case involving hmm. a sex crime. Uh, does that sound like a good strategy? Have you heard of that kind I, of strategy before? I like that. No, I haven't heard of that, but I might start doing it myself. You know, that's that's pretty smart. That's a good trial lawyer right there. Oh, oh yeah, Teresa Caviedo. She was she was amazing. So she would deliberately shock some of them just to see their reaction because, yeah, that's an area of law that would pre. I would assume a lot of people should not be on the jury for if they can't can't handle it. Uh, right. H- how do you handle the critiques of people who say, "How can you represent someone?" who is such a bad person. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I don't believe that people are bad people. But I think, you know, here's the thing. I actually spoke on defending um, sex cases involving children at a national conference fairly recently. And, um, you know, my philosophy is pretty ingrained within me. And I think first and foremost, look, I've been a victim. I have been a victim of the most heinous crimes imaginable. And yet I would never be a prosecutor because... I believe that the involvement of the government in terms of a prosecution does not make a bad situation better. And that's what it comes down to. It really, you know, what we do when a bad situation happens to somebody, you know, bringing in this team of government attorneys to come and say, listen, you have to go to jail. We're going to ruin your life. We're going to go through all of this, you know, with what? I mean, we don't have a rehabilitative system to make people, if they are quote unquote bad people into good people. So what's the point? You know, I just really don't believe that prosecution changes what is an inevitable and terrible and sad aspect of life. And that is crime. Crime happens, but I don't think prosecution in jail is the solution. So I'm happy to stand next to somebody no matter what they did and make sure that if the government's coming after them, they can come through me first. Interesting. So, like, uh, <laughs> let's just take the the um, uh, the most recent. Oh, uh, you know, think going on with the Capitol. I mean, I assume you've seen the videos and the pictures of the people running through the the Capitol building, uh, carrying the lecterns. Um, mm-hmm. That's got to be a real fascinating legal issue. Uh, have you have you thought about the how the law is going to come down? And sometimes it, it seems to me that you get this public backlash on certain events and and they want vengeance. They want someone to pay. And you might see some of that going on here with this, uh, this most recent event there at the, at the, this, I don't know if you want to call it the storming of the Capitol (laughs) or or whatever. Um, I don't know. I'm right. Have you thought about what kind of legal issues are going to be present in, in those kind of cases? Yeah. I mean, I know some of them were arrested and they're probably going to all be federal cases. I think a couple of them were actually charged with federal misdemeanors. But yeah, I mean, look, I'll defend anybody. (laughs) You know, I I had, you know, I had some cases from the Black Lives Matter protests this summer. And if I was in D.C. and somebody reached out to me, you know, to defend them and they stole the lectern, I would defend them. You know, I really I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting because there is always a prosecutor behind this who is making a selective determination. Right. right. They have discretion. They can choose who to charge and who not to charge. And I think That's we'd powerful. be lying, you know, if we said that there's some sort of, 
you know, equity in those decisions. But there's just not. So I, I basically across the board, you know, if you've been charged, I will defend you. And it doesn't really matter what the motives are. And I think you're you're right. I think a lot of times there, you know, there's pressure coming from a lot of different sources to charge certain people, to make an example, to make it something bigger than it's actually supposed to be in the court of law. You know. Now let me throw another case by you to get what your take on that is. Uh, see if it if it if I'm off or if I maybe I'm onto something. But I assume you have followed the college admissions scandal where Aunt Becky and others were were brought up on charges because they they bribe allegedly bribe some people so that their kids can get into colleges. Did did you hear about that whole scandal? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what was your take on that? Well, I thought it was really interesting. You know, I followed um, Lori Lachlan, Aunt Becky's defense, pretty closely. I think first of all. It was interesting because in federal prosecutions, which this was, you always start with somebody who's like the snitch, right? So this guy who was coordinating these bribes ends up being, you know, targeted by the feds. And then he sits down and gives them all this information to better himself, right? And that's that's how federal prosecutions work. You know, somebody has to flip and give all the info and then they get some sort of benefit. But, you know, in her case, it was really interesting. There were some you know, motions and some discussion in the courts about the fact that there was a lot of evidence that had been withheld, the prosecution hadn't given to her and her team that came from the original kind of snitch testimony from the guy who was coordinating the bribes. And it really, I think, went toward, you know, I, I do think there's an argument that it it was inculpating. It 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 in it made her seem as though, you know, her role was very different than what it actually was. And the fact that that evidence was withheld and not given to her when it was not in, sorry, exculpating evidence, you know, exculpable evidence. I just think that there was an issue with kind of fairness in prosecution. And as you and I know that we learned in law school, you know, we have this case, Brady versus Maryland, that demands that the prosecution is supposed to turn over any evidence that could be exculpatory in in a case. And they didn't do that. And that, you know, despite the fact that, yes, she pled guilty and she went to prison and yes, she did something wrong. That really struck me as, as an interesting part of that case, that they did not give the defense the, the evidence that I think they should have. I agree hundred percent. So there, I had two big, well, three, but two big issues with this whole uh, college admissions scandal. And you hit on one of them, which is this whole idea. I'm going to call it the perjury trap. And, and you mentioned you, you kind of target someone and, and you just talk to them until you can find them in some kind of uh, backtracking of their statement or, or something like that. And then you use that misstatement or that threat to um, to get them to write out other people and give them testimony that they that they don't want to a lot of people in the public that just seems wrong. Uh, does that does the perjury trap does a perjury trap actually play out in, in real practice? Yeah, it's interesting because in federal court, you know, we we come across this all the time, and you know, sometimes you're coordinating a sit down with your client, with the feds, with the federal prosecutors, but you just have to prepare them on a level that is just, you know, it's it's pretty ridiculous because you have to be so careful. You say one wrong thing, is that a false statement to a federal right. agent? You know, that's a crime unto itself. And, you know, you can, a misstatement or an omission can be a false statement. And so I think people don't quite realize 
with these federal prosecutions that a lot of times what may be a crime on paper or what they're alleging in the media actually was like so much less of, yeah. a, of, a, of an offensive act than may be realized, right? Oh. Anything can be a federal crime. Anything can right. be made into a federal crime, you know? So <laughs> it's just, you know, it is what it is. It's like Martha Stewart. Most people don't realize that Martha Stewart did not spend hard time for insider trading. She spent hard time for lying. And, and so exactly. it, it's the lies where they get you. And, and oftentimes you're not even lying. It's just in someone's mind and in their determination, oh, you didn't tell the truth. So I'm going to now make you hire a lawyer. We're going to go through some kind of trial or we're going to litigate this. Or you can just rat someone out and give me, give me some information that I want. And then we all can just forget this ever happened. And so the perjury trap is real and it's dangerous. Oh, um, so one other thing about the Aunt Becky trial, and I, I loved Aunt Becky, uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> in my mind, I thought this was all about nothing. I mean, I thought, really, you have nothing better to do with your time than to pursue these cases? And I don't know, just something about my mind. I thought this is a waste of resources. Yeah. You know what? The rich get breaks. Uh, we all knew that, right? If they had, <laughs> if they had done it another way, they would have just given money to the university and they would have put their name on the a side of a building and their kids would have been admitted. I mean, <laughs> do we really think George Bush got into Yale over his SAT scores? I mean, come on. Here, right. 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 I totally agree. I think I thought it was a big waste of money too. And it was just so extensive, so many prosecutions, so many defendants, so many lawyers, so much work. And for what? I think you're for totally what? right. I mean, <laughs> look, you know, I'm an adjunct professor at a law school and it's, you know, we definitely, I'm, I'm familiar enough with admissions and it's true. You're going to allow one or two legacies in, right? right. <laughs> one or two people that maybe their scores aren't, uh, on, you know, up to par, but certainly there's something else very attractive about them. So yeah, I thought it was a big waste of resources too. Absolutely. I know. It's not like these kids were actually going to graduate. They didn't want to go to school anyways, <laughs> but it's a whole nother story. Hey, I'm right? curious, I, I, what is one thing that you would wish that people knew about, about the law? And in other words, it, um, you know, as far as their rights are concerned, if they're going to face some kind of criminal prosecution, uh, the cops stop someone. What's one thing you wish that, that most people knew that they probably don't know? Hmm. I think, you know, I really wish that people knew the enormous power that prosecutors have. And I wish that they would care about who maybe is in their local office. And I think if they ever get selected for jury duty and they're sitting there, you know, I think there's always this presumption of guilt, right? right? Well, if I'm here, something happened and that guy sitting at that table next to the defense lawyer looks kind of like he's guilty. And, you know, they wouldn't bring this case if he hadn't done anything. Right. And the truth is that, you know, I'm on the board down uh, of the Georgia Innocence Project here. And, you know, innocent people are convicted, you know, right. with, with, with a pretty frightening frequency. And a lot of this comes down to prosecutorial misconduct and pushing cases for reasons that aren't maybe, you know, stemming from justice. And there's just a lot of, I think, issues in terms of how cases ultimately end up in front of a judge. And you can't just assume that somebody is guilty or that, you know, the facts are as they're alleged in a police report. You know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, particularly when it comes to prosecutors. So that's something that I wish people knew a little bit more before right, right. certainly they, you know, were in my, sat on my jury, for example. All right. So I want, I want to get a little bit of free legal advice here. So I was driving a rental car. It was a horrible morning. Uh, this is 
several years ago, but I had lost my keys to my car. Couldn't find my keys. I had a, I had a CLE I had to teach in Columbus, Ohio. So I went and I rented a car to, to drive to Columbus. And, and so my rental car had Texas license plates on it. I'm driving along I-70. A cop pulls me over. And he says, hey, you didn't use your turn signal. I said, really? I, I didn't use my, you pulled me over because I didn't use my turn signal. Mm-hmm. And they said, and you're going five miles over the speed limit. And I said, well, oh, come on, this is, the, this is my worst day. You, you pulled me over <laughs> for going five. I thought I was giving like a free 10 and you pulled me over for five. He said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to Columbus, Ohio. Where'd you come from? I said, Kansas City. He goes, is this your car? No, nah, it's a rental car. Got it. Do you have the paperwork? Yeah, here's the paperwork. And then finally he asked me this question. Are you dealing drugs? Now, <laughs> where did that come from? Right? <laughs> so he thought I was on some kind of run from Texas, just pulled me over <laughs> on a hunch, and then asked. So my first thought was, number one, is that really how they catch the criminals? By just saying, hey, are you dealing <laughs> drugs? I mean, you know, if I had said, oh, uh, you know what, good question. Yep, they're right there in the back of the truck. And just <laughs> right. get, push the dead body over to the side, and then you'll, right. you'll get to it. You know, um, but then, my, then I, I go to teach this class in Columbus, Ohio, and someone there, I, I share the story to the people in Columbus. Uh, and so one of them had asked me, well, Joel, if the cops had asked, can we check your car, what would you have told them? I said, no. Yeah, I would <laughs> So you're saying that would have been bad advice or something bad to do. I would say across the board, no matter what the situation is, no matter if you have absolutely no drugs in the car, you always say no. Yeah. It's just, that's, you know, it, it's, it's a no brainer for me and for any other criminal defense lawyer. Never consent to a search, never make a statement to police ever, period, end of sentence. I don't care how squeaky clean you are. It's about rights. And then it's also kind of what you referenced, you know, it, it, things that could potentially flow from that decision, yes. right? You, you decide to make a statement or you decide to consent to a search and lo and behold, there's something there that you forgot about or you say something that you shouldn't have said and now you have a whole different issue to deal with. Just It's better right. to avoid it at all costs, always. And, and in my situation, this was a rental car from Texas. It very well could have been used the week before to transport drugs and who knows what kind of residue might be in that trunk. I don't know. Sure. So, yeah, um, yeah you, you just don't consent to, to searches and so I, I, I'm glad that they told me that then I realized, okay, yeah, next time I get pulled over over. Uh, it hasn't happened since then. <laughs> no one's asked me if I'm <laughs> dealing drugs, but uh, I guess sometimes uh, cops do do pull you over. Um, all right. So what about um uh, what about this? I like to ask people uh, to give me some kind of um, a little I don't know if a quiz or a test, whatnot. But my cousin Vinny or To Kill a Mockingbird. Which one would you rather watch? Who? Well, you know, t- to be honest, I'm not too into movies. I've okay. seen them both. I think. I I feel like they both have, you know, they have in their own rights, like I, I think good stuff in each one. But I think at the end of the day, if you're a diehard criminal defense lawyer, you've got to go with To Kill a Mockingbird, right? All right. All right. To Kill a Mockingbird. I like the classics. I'm more, I'm a little old school. So okay. I'm not, and I love my cousin Vinny as well. However, I'm going to go with the OG, the classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. All right. Now, you thought that was just me asking for your opinion. No, there actually was a right or wrong answer, and you got the wrong answer. just want to let you know that. Uh, oh. Hey, better luck next time. No, I'm just kidding. Well, uh, maybe <laughs> if you're in, like, big law, you might choose uh, my cousin Vinny. I was giving the public defender answer. That is true. Yes, that is true. Uh, I Actually, I, um, I asked, um, when I teach these CLEs, I always ask people, hey, what is your favorite legal movie of all time? Those are the two that are always the responses. This is either my 
my cousin Vinny or To Kill a Mockingbird. And so I figured there must not be a third one. Uh, well, what about Legally Blonde, the female lawyer who defends the alleged murderer? I mean, that right. one should be on the short list. Well, that actually was my second question, which was Legally Blonde or Liar Liar. Uh, which one would you rather rather watch? Of course, Legally Blonde. <laughs> it is good. I, I love Legally Blonde. <laughs> I, I, I've seen that one recently again. It, it actually is, is quite uh, funny, a uh, good movie. Uh, now, is there something in particular about TV law or or law as it's depicted in the movies that bothers you? Yeah, I mean, okay, I will say I do love true crime. I'm one of those, you know, I, 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 I work during the day and then in my off time, I love anything related to criminal law and trial stuff. So I will say I don't like the depiction of public defenders a lot of times in television shows. Okay. Like, you know, their files are a mess and their suit is ill-fitting and they they can't really handle the job. And in right. my experience, you know, a lot of the people that I've worked with are by far some of the best trial lawyers in the game. And they're very cool. And they're, you know, the image, I think, is a bit disconnected from the reality, especially now. Um, but I will say overall, I just, I love it. <laughs> you give me any sort of podcast or show or movie about... Um, law or true crime, and and you know I'm probably going to be into it much more so than any other subject. Interesting. So, All right. Well, lastly yeah, like here, it. what is the most rewarding part of your role a- as a lawyer? I mean, my clients. I, I just I've never I've represented thousands and thousands of people, and I have yet to meet somebody that I couldn't bond with or develop a really deep relationship with. And when you stand beside somebody. It, you know, their lowest point and when they're their most afraid for their, like you said, their liberty and their life, you know, you just, you develop these incredible relationships and I love being able to help people. And if you can't get the absolute best result, at least you were there standing beside them. And sometimes that's all anybody really wants in this kind of situation. So I would say the client's by far, make my life incredibly fulfilling. And that, that is so true. Uh, again, there's there's a plus side to that and a negative side. Uh, if you get too emotionally involved and and if the, the jury ever rendered a verdict that was wrong, I don't know how I could handle that. I'd be like up in arms, not be able to sleep. But um, uh, And then you file that appeal. <laughs> that's right. You, you can live to see another day, file the appeal, <laughs> yep. and, and then make a you TV. You keep fighting. That's right. Make a TV show about it. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, being on today. I do appreciate it. Again, for our listeners, you can, uh, f- 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 as far as c- contacting you, we'll have all that information there on our website uh, and on our, the show notes to this podcast. So thank you so much, Molly. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wynn and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. <laughs>